Here's the 1-1. One, one. Swung on. There it goes. Deep left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Number 62 to set the new American League record. Aaron Judge hits his 62nd. All the Yankees out of the dugout to greet him. Just think of it. Three Yankee right fielders. The Babe hitting 60 and 27. The Jolly Roger hitting 61 and 61. And now Aaron Judge hits his 62nd home run. The most home runs any American leaguer has hit in a single season. And the American League has been alive for 120 years. This is Judgment Day. Case closed. Which, by the way, I thought was a great call by John Sterling. Yeah. I mean, some of that is scripted because yeah, yeah, yeah. of the numbers and, you know, the year and things like that. But Yeah, you can kind of plan it a little bit. There's been a Sterling cam uh, now for a couple of weeks on John Sterling. And uh, actually, that was a really good call yeah. for Sterling uh, mm-hmm. last night. So Aaron Judge, it's home run number 62. And as I've said, the single-season home run record is 73 by Barry Bonds. I do think 62 is an accomplishment because of how 60 and 61 have been cherished. Others have passed it. You can do what you want to praise them. I do think there's a little bit extra pressure in that uniform to get to that number. But uh, Judge hit 62. A good friend of mine. Uh, Larry mm-hmm. called me, and old-time listeners of my show, I remember Larry from Larry's Cedar River Seafood Restaurant. Okay, Larry's a wonderful, dear friend, long-time New Yorker, and he made a great point. Why they let him back up to strike out the following at-bat? You pull him after he hits the home run. This is true, yeah. Right? You pull him, which they did after the next at-bat. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's a good point. But, uh, yeah, good for Judge that he got it, and, you know, my guess is he won't play today. And no, he said he will. He wants the triple crown. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. That's right. And that's why you leave him in. <laughs> Honestly, that's why you leave him in. Yeah, I. although the odds of getting another hit, remember, hitting 300 means you're getting out seven times. Seven. I, I know, I know, but yeah. still. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, so so anyway, good for Judge at number 62 uh, last. What? Not, not, what? Who got fired this morning? The show just started. What's going on? <laughs> hey, Maris's kid. Oh, oh, come on. Don't do that. Really? Why? Scott's so rude. Irrelevancy now. Hey, old man, go home. Exactly, yeah. You're not needed anymore. All your free trips and your free tickets, they're over now, buddy. So get off Twitter. Stop with your, this is the clean home run king. Shut up. You think your time like, in the spotlight's over now, old like, man. Hey, hey, can I get the Marriott points for just one more night here or what? No! Out of there! Checkout's at 9. Uh, Isn't it 11? 9. Wow. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, home run number 62 for Aaron Judge. Coming on the same night as the Mets watch the Braves win the National League East. You can win 100 games and Met fans somehow find a way to not be happy. Yes. <laughs> But the difference, again, that's the benefit of the new wild card is the top two seeds get a bye. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wow. Yeah, final day of the uh, uh, Major League Baseball season, regular season uh, today. Got a big soccer match tonight for Lander yeah, City. let's go. 
The Lions Miami. versus the Herons. Uh, again. Orlando City win and Columbus loses. They've clinched a playoff spot. Yeah, again, in MLS, the uh, the first tiebreaker is total wins. Mm-hmm. Then it's goal differential. Yes. You're like, well, no, I thought in soccer it's goal different. It's wins as the tiebreaker, which is fine. You know, emphasis on winning games. Uh, and again, if Orlando wins and Columbus loses, that'll clinch a playoff spot. If that scenario doesn't happen, then we'll go into Sunday with a number of different scenarios as well. What's the vibe? What's the feel? What do you got? It's, we're ready. Ready. It's game day. Let's go. What's 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 uh, what's been the Miami and Orlando matchups this year? Uh, Orlando uh, won the previous two. One was an Open Cup game, mm-hmm. and then one was uh, a game just about six weeks ago that was one of the lengthy weather delays that we had, and it ended in the 88th minute with an own goal by Miami. Miami, this is my uh, description of Miami. They're the microwave dish, meaning, you know, when you heat something up and you come out, you take a bite, I got to heat up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Then you bring it out and it's too hot. Yeah. Then you want to let it cool off. Okay. Then you sample like, "Eh," and you put it back, meaning that they played well, Mm -hmm. poorly. Yes. Well, poorly. And I don't know where they are in the temperature dish. Right now, they're, uh, they've are they won four in a row, Mark, if you're wondering how the temperature dish is going. So um, that is tonight on Real Radio 104.1. Correct. And that match begins at? Uh, coverage at 7.30, kickoff just after 8 o'clock. All right. We got UCF football, the Wednesday uh, UCF football. A little action. See what I did there, Scott? Not I matching, like but it. But in the AAC, it's action. I like it. Uh, tonight at uh, 7 o'clock from FEC Mortgage Stadium. Pre-game is set for 5. Mm-hmm. What time's the Terry Mahajer so, so, pre-game interview? Uh, that'll be at 5.35. So you prep for a game, right? And mm-hmm. then when you get delayed, you just go back and kind of review things. I was wondering what and you then, were going to do. So so last night I spent like a you know about an hour, hour and a half, and it, and it was like, wow. I had that note like a week ago. Like, that's a good note. I just mm-hmm. forgot about it because it's been a while. So, um, anyway, we'll have a coverage tonight. Big game, conference opening game. SMU's got a really good offense. Uh, they've lost a couple of games to Maryland and TCU, but a very good uh, quarterback in Tanner Mordecai. And some, uh, Rasheed Rice is going to be a draft pick. He's going to be a very good NFL receiver. Uh, and will John Rice Plumley be effective throwing tonight? UCF's ground game, I think, can be really key. SMU's given up some yards. UCF is uh, top five of the country in rushing, so... Uh, important game uh, for the Knights, and uh, we'll finally get to play it. And I'll tell you what, just to, again, for, for those that have, oh, we didn't play on Sunday, and it was sunny and everything. I'm out of campus yesterday, right, talking mm-hmm. to people that still have flooded homes and streets and things like that. That's why the game wasn't played Sunday. Yeah, You don't what, need to like tax the area to bring thousands of people when others are still trying to get themselves rid of water. It's so. like you keep saying, just look around. Yeah. so um, we got a busy show. Danny Cannell's going to join us, the college football uh, analyst with CBS uh, and SiriusXM. is going to be on the next segment uh, with us. Keith Smith will talk some basketball. I did see Victor Wembayama and Scoot Henderson last night. Um, okay. Wembayama is really good. He's really Scott, good. I've never seen... He's like 12 feet tall. Well, well, okay, Porzingis, not the injured player that you've now seen in recent years, okay? Mm-hmm. But Porzingis, you remember the magic 
tried to convince the, the year, year before yep. to enter the draft because they wanted to take Kristaps Porzingis, mm-hmm. but he didn't go early. But Porzingis is over seven foot. Yeah, he still, for the most part, when he came into the league before all the injuries, had little arc on a shot. Mm-hmm. When Bayama is whatever he may be, seven three, seven four. I've never seen that size shoot as smooth outside. He's like Giannis and Kevin Garnett. Yeah, he's good, and he's not. He he's not thin. Chet Holmgren thin. No, he he's not. And and Scoot Anderson's really good. I can see why he's projected to be the number two pick of the draft. And he's been on the NBA uh, G League Ignite team for a couple years. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was it, it was kind of neat to watch those guys. We'll talk to Keith about that when. Um, uh, he joins us on the program. Greg Warmoth is going to join us. Oh, hey. The Channel 9 uh, anchor. Why? Because we like talking sports with Greg, former sports guy, and I want to talk to him about anchoring a hurricane last week. Are you going to ask him the questions that we were talking about? About meteorologists? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. What about the background? Yeah. Rolled up the sleeves, second meteorologist on the screen, hey, talking, tra- o- talking off mic, third person in the background. I told you at one point... I saw Warmoth check his microphone pack right. on air. Right, yeah. So we'll talk to Greg and uh, enjoy those conversations. We've got a movie Wednesday also coming up on uh, the program uh, today. So, yeah, busy uh, Wednesday on our show. Busy schedule as far as our Orlando team. Stick around as uh, we get things uh, uh, started. Danny Cannell talking some college football with us next. This is Countdown to Bowl Time on the Beat of Sports, presented by Florida Citrus Sports. Don't forget our friends at Florida Citrus Sports. Feast in the 50s tomorrow night. Get great details on that awesome event by going to floridacitrussports.com. Talk some college football, and uh, Danny Cannell joins us, the college football analyst, and he's here courtesy of BetOnline or BetOnline.net. Check out BetOnline for updated college football playoff conference. Heisman and college football week six lines like NC State's a three-and-a-half-point favorite over Florida State. The Gators ten-and-a-half over Missouri. Danny, good morning. Welcome. How are you? I am fantastic, man. It's been a really fun first month, which is already in the books. I mean, we're almost at the halfway point of college football, which is nuts, but it's been awesome. We've seen a lot of upsets. We've seen some powerhouses continue to excel, man. It's awesome. It's been a ton of fun. I'm glad to be here. So I'm name and sight dropping. Last time I saw Danny, it was in a hotel conference room. He was calling the game against FAU, uh, against UCF and CBS Sports Network. And since we last talked, it seems like 50 coaches have gotten fired. So I want to start in this trend, Danny, what we just watched in Wisconsin and other places. Why are we seeing uh, schools and ADs make a decision earlier in the season, and why are we watching guys with win percentages over 700 get fired? It's the ridiculousness of college football. It really is just absurd, the expectations some of these programs have. I'll, I'll give you the first. So to tackle the first part of the question is why is it happening early? I hate it because from a player's perspective, I think you send a message to players on the team that you have thrown the towel in on the season when you fire a coach in, you know, September in a lot of these instances. And shoot, it was after just a couple weeks into the season when we've seen some of these moves made with Scott Frost in Nebraska. That was one of the first ones. It's just, it's wild to me. Now, why it happened? I think there's a belief that programs want to get a head start on the next coach, right? 
and who that hot name is going to be. This year it happens to be Lance Leipold, the coach of Kansas, who's 5-0, and that everybody's going to be lining up for. Or maybe it's a hot coordinator that kind of evolves from a program that's having a ton of success. And then these, these schools want to get out to the front of the lines. They can be the first phone call. The only issue I see with that and why it doesn't make a lot of sense is we have never seen a coach. Now, maybe this changes. Things are changing rapidly. We've seen weirder things. We've never seen a coach leave a program. Like, there's no way Lance Leipold is going to leave Kansas mid-October, early November to get a head start on the Nebraska or Wisconsin job. You know, two jobs that he's been rumored to, to, um, to possibly be taking, which he denied vehemently because you know why he's not going to leave? He wants to do something special at those schools. He still wants to finish what he started. So I think that's a little bit of a, 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 a wild strategy. If you think you're going to get out in front of everybody, the coach isn't going to leave. And then as far as the money goes, the buyouts, it is just obscene how much money is around college football and how they're able to cut these checks. You know, I did see that Paul Christ at Wisconsin actually negotiated his way down from 19 million to 11 million. I'm sure there was something, a timeline. Maybe they were going to pay him 19 million over five years and they said, we'll give you 11 up front. He said, I'll take it. Ed Ogeron last year was given 17 million. Willie Taggart at Florida State was given, you know, somewhere in that range too. There is so much money at these schools' disposal. And I think it's frivolous. I think it is bad spending habits. And, you know, I guess we can take a key from our government or our society, which, you know, tends to borrow way too much than we can afford. And you just you get a little bit reckless with it. But it's what's happening. And it's another reason why, Mark, I look at things and I have always been I like the amateur model, the student amateur uh, amateur model. But if this much money is going around, if they're if they're writing these types of checks to pay people not to work then we can pay the players to actually do the work on the field. It's why I've come full circle on that one, uh, which is just wild to see how much college football has changed. I do want to get to the games on the field, but can I follow up? In a pay-for-play world, which you know that's what the world of collective and big donors are doing here, has the power shifted where now if you need the money to buy the recruit, then I get to decide who the coach is because if I don't like your coach, I'm not giving you the money you need to go acquire talent. Absolutely. You're seeing a massive power shift, and I think it's only going to continue to change as, you know, I think the coaches' salaries, I don't think they'll come back down, but I think you'll see a redistribution of that money that's been going to the coaches and going to buyouts and being, you know, put into collectives, to pools, somehow to start getting the money towards the player. Like, if you're a, and I think this is the smart thing to do. I love coaches, but I am a firm believer that it is not about the X's and O's as much as about the Larry's and the Joe's. I mean, it is about the guys on the field. And if you can find a good coach, maybe not a great coach, but a good coach who's willing to play and maybe a 60% you know, value of what the going rate is for head coaches, and with that remaining money, you can put it towards building a roster, I'd say I'd take that deal all day long. So I do think you'll see that shift. The other thing that has shifted is the players themselves who have never had any power. You were stuck at your school. You had to sit out a year. You couldn't make any money. You know, it was very restrictive. That has completely flopped. I mean, the pendulum has swung the exact opposite direction where now players hold all the power. If you don't play me, I'm leaving. You know, if you don't pay me, I'm leaving. And it has really unfolded in a way that I don't think it's great. It's why a lot of coaches are, you know, begging for some sort of, 
guidelines, some, you know, some policies that are put in place so that you at least have some continuity where you can build a roster. Because when you're trying to manage 85 scholarships and trying to, you know, set in place some sort of succession plan for your quarterback, for your linebacker, for your wide receivers, it's almost impossible when you see, you know, I think the average last year for a power five school was 11 players entered the portal. Like that is a lot of turnover on your roster that we've never seen before in, uh, in college football. And now we are. It is just one of the many problems that's facing the sport. Quickly, 10 o'clock hour, WYJM Orlando, WJRRHD2, Cocoa Beach, Orlando sports leader, Martin Anazabita Sports. Danny Kennell's with us, a college football analyst here, courtesy of Bet Online and BetOnline.net. Um, in 2017 and 18, you, you were one of the few national voices that supported UCF and backed up the quality of their team. I do enjoy on a weekly basis your banter back and forth with fans about brands, the SEC power, and as we get into the season where polls do begin to matter, um, we still struggle, I guess, with people accepting that you don't have to have a certain logo on your helmet and be good. Um, I don't know if we're better at it, Danny, despite all the television exposure today. So when I say brand value to you and polling week to week, you say what? Oh, I'm almost losing it, Mark, like with the (laughs) AP Top 25. It's just ridiculous because they're very clearly – is brand bias. There's very clearly preseason bias, which is wrong. Like, it doesn't matter what we think of you coming into the season. It's what have you done on the field this year. And that for whatever reason, the, the voters just have a really hard time with reevaluating and reassessing where a team should be ranked. I'll give you an example of a team that has a pretty good brand. NC State right now is 4-1, and one, and they are ranked 14th in the country. Now, NC State, they almost lost to East Carolina. They're, East Carolina missed a field goal in week one. They beat Charleston Southern, an FCS school. They beat Texas Tech. They beat uh, UConn, who's one of the worst teams out there. And they lost to Clemson in a game where they scored a late touchdown or else they get beat by 17. Instead, they lose by 10. And Clemson's a really good program. So I guess you could qualify that as a good loss. Where is their good win? The answer is they don't have one. And yet, because they had preseason expectations and they were one of the teams that entered the preseason in the top 15, they just stay where they are and they don't drop. As opposed to what I think the way the system should work, you should every single week, because you get more information, you should throw out everything you thought about that team and reevaluate based on who they played and how did they look playing them. And if you're a program that has better wins than certain programs, and I think Kansas is a great example. Now, Kansas is a big basketball brand, and 20 years ago they were a big football brand, but they have been irrelevant the last 10 years, and it's one of the great stories of college football, and yet last week they weren't even ranked. This week they come in and they check in at 20th, or excuse me, 19th at 5-0, and which I think is nice, and it's about time we gave them credit, but they've beaten West Virginia on the road. Well, yeah, I could say maybe that's not a great win. But they beat Houston on the road. They beat a Duke team, which is much better than we thought. And then they beat an Iowa State team, uh, which are, you know, that's four, three power five wins, two of them on the road. Like, what more do you want them to do? Then they don't have a loss. Like, their resume to me is better than NC State. And yet they're four or five spots behind them in the ranking. It's just the latest of, like, I could go through these and give you, like, ten of them that drive me nuts, Mark. I don't want to waste your time. But they're all over the place in the top 25. It's either preseason bias or brand bias that they always default to. 
Give me a, a, a quarterback's view of when you get a coaching change and how it impacts the returning guy. Todd Van Dyke had maybe the oh. best second half of the season last year. And now, you know, he'll start, but they questioned about whether he should stay. And Anthony Richardson had very little experience, but there's a new staff there. What is that like, the adjustment? Because we as fans assume, hey, you're going to be great regardless of, of what happens, but there's a big impact there, is it not? Oh, for sure, Mark. And this is one where I look at, I don't know if anybody, you know, if you played a, a football, at, you know, even at a high school level, I think you can have some appreciation for this, but not if you didn't play in multiple systems. And that's the thing I look at that is the most challenging. And it only continues to get tougher at the college level. And then it's something that frustrates me at the NFL level as well. When you see, you know, teams turn over an offensive coordinator and you have to learn a whole new system. It is like learning a new system and a new language because you speak a one verbiage and then you might have totally different terms, terminology to describe the same formations, the same route concepts but you have to relearn those. Sometimes you have different concepts altogether where you have to learn where to go the football. Like if your read is, all right, you know, I'm going one, two, three in one system and another system, it might be one, two, three, four. And and it might be, you're going to see this look against this defense, but against, you know, this defense, you've got to switch out and get to another one. There's checks, there's audibles, all kinds of very complicated, you know, schemes that take time and repetition to get good at, to get comfortable with. And just when Tyler Van Dyke is having, you know, starting to excel, starting to come into his own at Miami, they go ahead and they make a change. And then look at what happened. So Rhett Lashley, who was the play caller for them last year at Miami, he goes to SMU, who was putting up big offensive numbers. Now you get Josh Gaddis, who comes in from Michigan. And if you follow Josh Gaddis throughout his career, he ran a system that really benefited quarterbacks that were a little bit more mobile, ran a little bit more up-tempo, some different kind of concepts. And now you've got a quarterback who's struggling both because the system may not fit his skill set to the best, and then he's also struggling with terminology and, you know, comfortability in a system, knowing where to go. So he's probably – it's taking him longer to process information. And so I look at it, I'm like, this stinks for Tyler Van Dyke. It does. And, it's, and fans don't care. They're like, oh. Where's the quarterback we saw last year? Let's bring in the backup. And he's getting booed at home, and it's really, really tough to overcome. I'll give you another one. Brendan Armstrong, the quarterback in Virginia last year, led the entire country in passing yardage. He was one of the better stories that were out there. Bronco Mendenhall steps aside. They clean house. He's got a new staff. His offensive coordinator, who helped him lead the country, goes to Syracuse. Well, guess, guess what's happening now at Syracuse? Garrett Schrader, their quarterback, is thriving in that system. You know, because it's a system that's very quarterback-friendly and allows you to make a lot of these reads, and it's more—it's a little bit more simplified, and you can put up these massive numbers. Now you've got Garrett Schrader, who's one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC, and now you've got uh, the former quarterback, Brennan Armstrong. He's kind of struggling, and he's a quarterback I think probably should have left Virginia and found somewhere that maybe better fit his skill set. You see it all over the place, Mark, and it's very frustrating because I don't think anybody realizes how hard it is to continue to relearn offenses year in and year out. Uh, I want to do a couple things before I let you go. Uh, I want to go back in, in 1996. Danny, we watch college offenses today. I started doing UCF games in 95 when Dante Culpepper was a freshman. Yeah. I still maintain that Dante Culpepper and Charlie Ward are among the greatest college quarterbacks I ever saw. So as you watch all these offenses today and you backed up Charlie when he got to Florida State, when you think of that offense and you watch what we now look as the norm in offense, 
what comes to mind when you see what Charlie started to do back then? Oh, I think there's no doubt Charlie Ward would have not only replicated the success and then some that he had back then, bringing Coach Bowden his first national championship and winning the Heisman Trophy. I think he would have put up even bigger numbers now, but more importantly, I think he would have been a top five pick in the NFL draft because teams aren't as worried about size and, and you know and measurables and saying, well, you have to be six four, six five, and you have to you know be this big hulking you know two hundred and forty pound prospect. They would have been willing to give him a shot and a chance to succeed, and I think Charlie would have. Abs- I just still think Charlie's one of the more underrated passers. You know, I think people think of him. For whatever, maybe there's some racial bias in there, whatever it was, because he was black. They think of him as a running quarterback or a dual-threat quarterback. He could win from the pocket all day long. And he was as accurate as anybody has ever, uh, as I've seen at the college level. He was as, uh, his ability to anticipate, to read out defenses, as good as anybody I've ever seen. He would have absolutely crushed it. But I did want to hit on your Dante Culpepper, because I remember when we played UCF my senior year, I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be an easy game. Like, we're, you know, this is an upstart program who's just coming into their own. Like, we should blow them out. They were a much tougher out. And I remember getting hit harder in that game than I anticipated, being like, where did this team come from? And that was kind of the beginning of me thinking, man, this UCF program could be building something special. And sure enough, they did, and they continued to do so. And I think it's only going to get better with the moves of college football as they're going to be elevated to a better conference. And I think the sky's the limit for this UCF program. You should have said 92-93 with Charlie when Charlie got there in the national championship and you yeah. got there. But let me end with this in 96. Does Danny Cannell remember the three quarterbacks drafted ahead of you in that draft? What was the question again? I'm sorry. I got cut off just a little bit. Do you remember the three quarterbacks drafted in front of you in the 96 draft? See if I get this right. Tony Banks was the first one taken. That's correct. There was Bobby Hoying in front of me. Excellent. Bobby Hoying was uh, second. He went to the Eagles and one more in front of you. Uh, This one bothered me the most because I really (laughs) wanted to go play for this franchise. Jeff Lewis, correct, out of Northern Arizona. And I had, I remember his name getting called and I wanted to go to two places, either Miami to back up Marino and learn from him or John Elway and the Denver Broncos. And the reason I remember the Jeff Lewis one is because I was like, who is this guy? I had no idea who he was. I was like, where, you know, Bobby Hoying, I knew, Tony Banks, I knew. Jeff Lewis was a relatively unknown guy from Northern Arizona. I was like, what is happening? And that was, that was one of the punches to the gut. I was like, man, am I even going to get drafted at all? That's when it started to get real. Thankfully, the Giants took me not too soon after those guys and gave me that opportunity. But, yeah, I definitely remember the names because they were. that was a long couple days I had to wait for my name to be called. Danny Cannell is here courtesy of uh, BetOnline. Find him at BetOnline.net. Check out BetOnline for updated college football playoff conference, Heisman, and college football lines for the weekend. Thanks, Danny. Enjoy the weekend. Appreciate it. Awesome, Mark. You too. Have a great one. Danny Cannell, some good insight on college football. Yes or no, did I inject myself too many times in the interview? But you got great responses every time you did. Scott always goes, hey. You're not interviewing yourself. Why don't you ask questions <laughs> of the guests? Yeah. Uh, we come back. A uh, little basketball. Our good friend Keith Smith will join us. Last night, I did watch the number one pick in next NBA's draft, and I was impressed. We'll get to that and more with Keith when we come back. The Beat of Sports and Mark Daniels are brought to you by Seminole Power Sports, number one in fast fun. Reinhardt Road in Sanford, Highway 441 in Eustis. Enjoy Seminole Power Sports, whatever it may be. You get set to enjoy maybe a weekend. The water, dirt road, 
You'll find it all at Seminole Power Sports. SeminolePowerSports.com. Keith Smith talks NBA basketball with us. Find his work at Keith Smith NBA. And there you find the links to all of his stuff. It's Spotrack, Celtic Blog, front office show, and his tweets throughout the day of basketball news. Good morning, Keith. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. All right. So I watched last night and saw Victor Wembayama and uh, Scoot Henderson play. And, um, wow, uh, that was impressive. Uh, somebody of that size to move and shoot the way that he did. These are two made-for-TV games, and this is where we are in the world of, uh, of basketball to put this together. But give me your thoughts. I know there were a ton of NBA people there, and both the players lived up to the hype. It wasn't like an all-star game of let guys score at will. It was an exhibition, but what'd you take out of last night's game? Yeah, it's very rare when two players come in so hyped like, like this, and then they both absolutely deliver. There there was you know nothing I think you could walk away from saying, ah, I wasn't that impressed. I mean, you, you mentioned it. Uh, Victor Wembanyama, he's Somewhere between seven foot three and seven foot five, he he says he's seven three. Others say he's measured at seven four and seven five. Well, we'll find out eventually. But this is not a you know three hundred pound guy who's a stiff guy and can't really move. I mean, he moves like he's a you know six foot ten uh, type of player or something like that. It's very very impressive uh, what he can do off the dribble. Um, you know his timing as a shot blocker is impeccable. He's just unbelievable. And then Scoot Henderson uh, going right at him all game long, kind of, you know, taking on all comers. He he gave a quote where he said, when I go against people, I want to dominate and demoralize them. And, and that was kind of exactly what he set out to do in, in that game. And, and it was you know, really impressive. And these two guys, uh, you know, almost across the board are now 1-2 on everybody's draft boards before this uh, draft season is even really fully cranked up. We've watched over the years that there are certain players that teams do make decisions about, I'd like to have that guy. It's not comical. I don't know if Danny Ainge is one of those that clearly gutted a roster. But when you see a player like this, what is the ripple effect of teams that end up saying, guys, let's be realistic. What do we want to do this year? Is it a large group in the NBA this year? Well, no matter what we want to say about, quote, tanking, but let's not kid ourselves. If he is one of these unique, and I, I'm scared to say LeBron-like different physical makeups, but if he is one of those players you think is an ultimate franchise game changer, how many teams are pivoting? Yeah, I think we're already seeing a handful kind of take take that direction. I think you know San Antonio, uh, Utah for sure. Um, I don't think Utah's done uh, continuing tearing down that roster by any means either. I think, uh, but we'll see you know what happens with teams like the Magic and the Rockets and the Thunder as the year goes along. Maybe even the Pistons and the Pacers in that grouping as well. Because I think what these teams realize is one, it's in the NBA, because of the flattened lottery odds, uh, where the top three teams basically have all the same odds going in, which was a, a way for the NBA to kind of combat the, uh, you know, explicit tanking of, you know, hey, we might only want to win 10 or 11 games this year to be in position. Well, what they did was they flattened out those lottery odds. So you, you, you need to be bad, but you don't need to be, you know, horrifically bad, I guess is the best way to put that. Um, but we're going to see teams definitely that, that some have already started the process. They're going to see others by the time we're about the first of the year or so. They're going to look at it and say, all right, you know, making a run at 10 in trying to get into the play-in tournament does not make sense for us. What makes sense for us is to really kind of bottom this thing out and go. And you're going to start seeing 
you know, one of the unfortunate side effects is going to be, uh, yeah, you know, player axis shut down with back spasms or he sprained an ankle and it's going to be out for a week. He's out for a month. We're, we're going to get a lot of stuff like that. Uh, preseason is a time to experiment, so don't get caught up in, in, in lineups and rotations. And, and, and it's just one game. Uh, people are trying to make a big deal. The Magic brought out that massive front line of Paolo, Wendell <laughs> Carter, and, uh, and, and, and Mo Bamba. But I do think it's interesting that they have worked a little bit of putting the ball in the hands of Paolo. And we've seen a little bit more of that in the NBA of, uh, of you know, the, 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 the point forward. But what are your thoughts? Because clearly he did have the ball in his hands at times at Duke. And you've seen big guys in setting offense that some teams like that ball in that person's hands as opposed to the guard that then has to get it to the person's hands. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of teams embrace the idea of what you know would have been previously called kind of inverted offense, where your bigs are your primary playmakers. Nikola Jokic has won back-to-back MVPs being the fulcrum of an offense that way. Now, I'm not trying to say that's what Paolo's going to be. I would never put those kind of expectations on him. But I think it is a sign of a big reason why he was deemed to be the best fit for this Magic roster. Their guards that they have, and there's a whole bunch of them that they're going to have to sort things through and figure out, you know, who are the kind of long-term guys. But none of the Magic guards are your traditional playmaking point guards. They're all more scorers than they are playmakers. So that means your playmaking has to come from other places. And I think Wendell Carter Jr., one of the things that really is prized about him is his passing ability. But Paolo's ability to really kind of put the ball on the floor, go by guys, set guys off, that's going to be good. We saw Franz Wagner do more of that than was expected as a rookie, and then even more of that uh, in Eurobasket over the course of the summertime. So I think we're going to see the Magic really kind of say to Paulo Bancaro. I, I don't I, I don't think we're ever going to see full on point Paulo where you know we're out there with three guys that are six foot or five guys rather that are six foot ten and bigger uh, very often. But I do think you're going to see them run a lot of offense through him, and I think they're very comfortable playing him alongside not only one other big but two other bigs at times. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch that develop over the course of the year. I always think these are silly questions when I ask people to comment on a survey, but the NBA annual GM survey has become must-read fodder at the beginning of the season so i don't know if there was anything that you looked and go hmm, that's kind of interesting was there anything in that uh there were a couple things i, I thought um you know that the they the, the gms were um it's not overwhelming confidence but fairly uh high percentage said that the milwaukee bucks are who they think will take home the nba title i don't think that's crazy by any means i think they're certainly uh one of several teams that have a chance of winning the championship but i did think that was interesting that they were uh, received such a high chunk uh, of the vote there i, I thought uh, paulo bancaro being uh, kind of almost overwhelmingly the favorite to win Rookie of the Year. Some people would look at him and say, well, he was the number one overall pick, and Chet Holmgren is out for the year. But there's a lot of other guys who are going to you know, have a good chance at putting up numbers, but you know, the confidence that they put, put in him. And then you know, I, I thought the Cleveland Cavaliers and Memphis Grizzlies kind of getting the almost tie for the most exciting young cores uh, is really fun for, for two uh, kind of mid-market mid, uh, cities out there that that i think that's great you know sign for the league that there's so much excitement around those two young teams um tyler hero gets his extension done with miami explain uh why now and then the challenge miami has in the future when it comes to the salary cap 
Yeah, the why now is these guys who are wrapping up their rookie deals, they, they've got to sign an extension uh, by the 17th. Otherwise, they, they can't. Uh, anymore, then, then they will be uh, eligible for restricted free agency in, in the summertime. Um, they, they're not allowed to extend in season. So that's why you're seeing some of these deals get done here as we're, we're only a couple weeks left. Um, what generally the process there is the no-brainer max guys. So the guys like John Morant and uh, Darius Garland and Zion Williamson, they get done right away because there's no there's no reason to wait. Then you see everybody else who's not a no-brainer max guy uh, get done, and that's where Tyler Hero landed. Now it's 120 million fully guaranteed over the next four years. He can get up to 130 million uh, if he reaches some incentives. Um, the challenge for the Heat long term is they are now locked into. Next season, if Victor Oladipo picks up his player option, they have $171 million in guaranteed money on their books, and that's only for eight players. And that is a huge amount of commitment to, to a roster that has been good, but they're not seen as a title favorite. So they're going to have to work through that. And then once you get past that, it's not just a one-year thing for Miami because you've also got Jimmy Butler, is just is going to kick in next year into a long-term contract extension for over $40 million per season. You have Bam Adebayo, you have Tyler Hero, you still got Duncan Robinson. They've got to re-sign a couple of role players that, that they've really done well with the development on, and Max Struess and Gabe Vincent. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this plays out in Miami because they've got some serious roster decisions to make while also looking right down you know, the line at a massive, massive tax bill that's going to be you know, in the range of where the Warriors have been at and the Nets and teams like that. Mm. Uh, Keith's work is uh, uh, good stuff. You can get to him on Twitter at KeithSmithNBA. Get the links to all of his uh, uh, work and a lot of things happening now as the preseason is underway. Good stuff, Keith. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a busy Wednesday, as we mentioned tonight. UCF football, the Wednesday game because of obviously the storm. Coverage at five, kickoff at seven. Orlando City with a very important game for them down at Miami tonight. Real Radio 104.1, that match after eight o'clock. Uh, and much to get to in our program, including Movie Wednesday. But our good friend Greg Warmoth, the former sports guy, news anchor now at Channel 9, uh, will stop by. We'd like to talk to Greg every, I don't know, four to six months, and we'll get him after a week that he was anchoring a hurricane. We'll talk to Greg next. The Bay of Sports, Mark Daniels on this uh, Wednesday. I am biased, and I told our next guest that as the storm was approaching last week, he was my source of news, and then when the cable went out, had the app, and Still was my source of news, uh, even afterwards. Our good friend Greg Warmoth, a longtime uh, member of the meeting in this town, first in sports and now for many years at news, the anchor at WFTV uh, Channel 9, and wanted to reach out and uh, see if Greg would come on, talk a little bit about what last week was like and kind to do it. So good morning. Hope you got some rest the last few days. Hey, yeah, Mark. Um, thanks for having me on, and I'm, I'm glad that you and your family made it through. And I was talking to Scott, and, and they did okay as well because so many – Within the sound of our voice, that's all they got is the sound of our voice um, on their car radio. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of tough to see the aftermath, honestly. When it's happening, it's like, you know, probably you calling play-by-play for a sporting event, and then afterwards, you know, that's when the real stuff happens. I, when did you get a sense that this was even more, not that 
whether people were wrong at all. It's just uh, was a lot maybe more damaging than people thought. We knew that the Southwest was going to be really bad, but Greg, as the night got deeper, it was like, wait a minute, this is this is picking up in Daytona. The you know the the the, the flags that were blowing off the pier and everything. When did you get a sense like this is a lot more damaging? So in my periphery, the way the the news studio is set, if I'm watching the the meteorologist, you know, tracking and and talking about the, you know, the cone and here it comes ashore and this is the rainfall. But in my periphery, as I look over there, are this is this bank of monitors. And one of the monitors is a pretty good sized television that is our Daytona Beach Tower Cam. Mm -hmm. And I I remember distinctly, because Tom actually reminded me of this a couple days ago, Tom Terry, that I I said to him, I said, I interrupted one of his things. I said, hey, Tom, let's pop up that camera from, from Daytona Beach and look at this. This is, I've been watching this for the last five minutes, and though it's not a gust. This is sustained. And so that camera really, and as you saw, the day wear on, and then the next day it got knocked from its, you know, its mooring, and the flags were just tattered um, to basically a couple of threads. Um, that's when I realized this was like a boxer winding up and punching Volusia County and the coast with the force of wind that was obviously, you know, incredible and damaging and pushed the, you know, the storm surge ashore and they got all that rain. So to answer your question, I think it was just kind of that camera that you brought up. That was yeah. the one that told the story. But it was a massive storm in size. I remember the different images of saying, here's Charlie and, and, and this storm like a Pac-Man would gobble up 15 Charlies. just the size of Ian, right? You take the inside, you know, we call it the eye of the hurricane, but the eye wall, the interior of that um, would envelop the entire size of Charlie. Um, so you could place Charlie inside the eye as it came ashore in southwest Florida down, you know, in Fort Myers Beach. And those poor folks down there really, you know, there's not much left. But, yeah, that, that will show you. And then it really – the other thing that happened, and if you watched our coverage, I called it the shortcut because it looked like, and by all indications, it was going to exit in Volusia County. But it took kind of a right-hand turn there on I-4 and then, if you will, went along the beach line, If you know, just in terms of using roads as a way of, you know, mapping things, and then exited through basically Brevard County. But had it gone up I-4 all the way – and not made that little jog, we're talking instead of 16, 17 inches, we're talking 26 to 30 inches of rain mm. in Volusia County. And it was already bad enough. Those people are already still going to experience a lot more flooding as the St. John's flows from south to north, which is, you know, that's like the River Nile. I mean, not many rivers do that. Take me behind the scenes if you can. What's it? What's it like to, to, to broadcast that as it evolves? One thing, you sit down at 5, 6, 11, there's news, you're reporting, you've got anchors, you do stories, but this is happening and there's a lot of things moving around. How do you prepare to broadcast a hurricane? And then what's it like as it's developing over the course of hours on air? Well, you try to get out of the way, number one, and, and paint the picture that you're seeing. But really, you're you're handing off to what I think is Central Florida's greatest running back, you know, and his and his his stable of really really good meteorologists. So, I would say it's kind of like, you know, again I know we're on sports radio. You know, just you know, just handing off and and getting out of the way and and whenever necessary, kind of resetting and 
this is what's happening and, and listening in your earpiece for various uh, producers to tell you, you know, where the reporters are and when they're ready to go and then finding the spot to interject with the team that's tracking and kind of reading their body language. Do they need a breath right now or are, are they um, are they technically having some issues with a map where you can jump in and make it seamless and not make it, you know, obvious to the viewer? So it's it's just kind of storytelling, and, and my background in sports probably at the end of the day is, well, I feel like I can do it okay, and it, you know, and do it, and try to keep people engaged. Um, it's not hyperbole at all. We 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 don't do that. Our reporters don't go out there and do the Jim Cantori stuff. That's that's not only frowned upon. That's not allowed. Um, and none of our reporters do that. So you know, somebody stopped me. This this kind of stuck with me, Mark. Um, I was heading in for what would be living at the TV station for two and a half days, right. um, literally not leaving. Um, and she said to me as I was out kind of loading up my car, she said, oh, are you off to do some fear-mongering? And I just kind of, you know, shook it off. Well, I'd love to hear what that person's reaction is to what they're seeing now. Was that fear-mongering? I would say no. No, and then, I mean, I don't want to venture off too much of it, and I, I don't know Jim Cantori personally other than everybody else watching, but I think at some point you become the TV actor and you're no longer what you were supposed to be. You, you don't need to stand in the middle of the street to risk your life to let me know that the winds are big, but, I, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of curious, over the years, how it's changed, the use of social media, the ability of communicating, where now, while you guys may have 15, 20 different trucks and reporters out, You've got literally tens of thousands of additional reporters that are either texting or posting video. How does that change coverage of an event like this? Night and day. Yeah. Um, absolutely night and day. Um, we we pull from them. Uh, you probably heard that somewhere in the storm I realized that I was receiving a lot of emails, a lot of uh, direct messages. People were really engaging with me on my phone, and I was talking about those engagements. Uh, on the air and encouraging them to send safely whatever they were seeing. And we were turning those around, not just on our website, but certainly on television. I was also relaying um, that information to the the weather team um, in our tosses when we were talking. And I would say that, you know, um, Sarah, for example, in uh, Deltona is telling me that their house is now surrounded by water and they're sitting up on the countertops. And I know that person just through, you know, social media and can verify that with pictures. And so it, it really helped with not just showing of all those those journalists, which is what I call them because they were journaling what was happening and they may not be professional, but they were doing a great job. But just their, their real-time stories, you know. Um, and the nice thing, too, is with technology, Mark, beyond the stuff that we know, social media, Pardon me. Our crews no longer have to raise a mask. Yeah. Um, you know, like a telephone pole. They it's all done via the internet now with these things called Live Use. Um, L I V E U. I wish I would have bought stock in that company. <laughs> um, you literally wirelessly go live from anywhere at any time, and then our drones. As soon as the winds drop down to where you get a drone up, who needs a helicopter? Yeah. I mean, we have at Channel Nine. We probably have forty drones that are really good drones with beautiful video that stream that back live on TV. And so it's much steadier. It's much closer. It's much more HD. I mean, it's just beautiful images of, you know, terrible things. But so technology is, 
is the king. And then also we like to pull the curtain back. And we like to say, and it's important to say, we're seeing this for the first time with you. And I think the viewer likes that. It's unscripted. We don't know what we're going to look at. And, hey, let's look at this video for the first time together and see what we see at the same time. So much of it is, you know, it's it's the unvarnished. And I think that that's why the ratings reflect that, you know, WFTV is a strong um, strong television station still, even with, you know, departures of some famous names. Um, people trust us. And um, that's not, I'm not patting anybody on the back. I'm just saying that, you know, we, we have a, it's not by accident that when something like this happens, our team is ready. I mean, we practice this, you know, we don't, we don't, fully script ending we just okay so this happens we have these certain days of the year where you know in-house we see how we do what where was the communication breakdown who needs more help when you know there's a bunch of social media stuff coming you know where and so all of that as soon as it really happens nobody's freaking out it's really, really important. All right. I, I, I do have to ask, and, and there's nothing comical about the tragedy that's out there. We have loss of life and still seeing the damage and all sorts of stuff. But you got to walk me through when the third wall is broken down. There has to be research in television that somebody said at some point, the weather guy takes the jacket off and the sleeves get rolled up and the second meteorologist enters the screen and we allow a third person off screen to be in the camera shot. When did that start? Well, Tom's stuff happened like everything that's a trend that is a that's a real trend. It happened organically, right? Um, and social media invented this Tom Terry scale. Jacket off. Everything's you know it's getting serious. But it's industry wide now. Everyone's taking a jacket off and sleeves are rolling up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Tom, you know, Tom, while he didn't start the phrase "hunker down," he was back in two thousand four because he speaks in a folksy, and that's not a negative, in a real, you know, guy next door kind of tone, and he finds these ways of, of communicating. And he, you know, with the, with the sleeves up and the tie now loosened is the last step of this, it has taken a life of its own. So to answer your question honestly, it was never choreographed nothing's ever said like oh time to take your jacket off tom he does it when he has to excuse me when he really has to move around and there's a lot of you know physical sliding of the you know the mouse up and clicking on all this different stuff and i think he just found that he was kind of working up a lather back there so the jacket came but even you warm with i saw you change the battery pack on air the camera was on you kind of leaning off you know we kind of break that uh, rule of, uh, of stuff on a set there when the storm happened well you know? and and that's <laughs> and you know what and and there again it goes back to kind of what i was saying right the curtain back that um it's called process storytelling yeah. is what we're coached and the viewer really wants you know research shows wants to know they, I took videos of Tom in front of the green screen. People know what the green screen is now. Right. And, and I got a ton of feedback like, oh, that was cool. And, boy, it's really it's neat to see that, too. So, you know, we don't mind. There's, you know, it's not the Wizard of Oz behind a curtain anymore. I mean, it's it's like this is how we do it. Yeah. These are who the people are that do it. And the other day we couldn't get a signal up with, uh, with Shannon. She couldn't hear me, and she was in Fort Myers. And so while that was being worked out, instead of saying, okay, we'll try to get to you in a minute, I said, okay, so 
here's how this is working, folks. She's on what's called a live view. It triangulates cell phone signals. I'm not a technical person, but it takes, you know, three or four carriers to direct that video feed our way. So as this is getting worked out, and by the time I finished explaining what was happening, she was ready. And so, you know, before we're like, maybe a little embarrassed, oh, technology's not working, no, that's live TV. Instead, the way that I do it is I explain it. And I think people like it. Um, For those that have been in this town state for a number of years, and, you know, hurricanes happen, and I think, uh, I I guess we, we should learn from each one, and yet they're unique in many ways. You've done this now for a while are we better, not just at reporting, but but, but we and uh, as a population? I mean, you can't prepare sometimes for things like the devastation we're watching. And I, this is nothing to do with politics or climate control or anything like that. And I always wonder, you know, are we better? And, 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 and what else can we do that we're not doing? And I don't know. Sometimes I, I think we're good. Sometimes I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Yeah, um, there's a there's an article that came out, I think it was this week, Tom was telling me about it yesterday, so I still need to read it fully, but it said that the vast majority of people in a hurricane, the first, and this is something we need to take note of, the first track they hear is the track they live by. So if the early track says it's going into Tampa, then that person really needs to be convinced that that's not the case. And even if their cone of uncertainty shows Fort Myers and the line really seems to still take it, you know, northward a bit to the Tampa area or Sarasota, that's what they're going on. And the people in, say, Volusia County, we knew it was going to be a rain event for them. And so the guard's down. And, you know, there were three people that died in New Smyrna during the storm. Think about, I mean, usually this kind of stuff happens after, you know, they fall off a tree, you know, they fall off a, a roof cleaning trees or something like that. There was a guy that um, drowned in his house in New Smyrna. So to your point, yes, and that's the great thing. Every time you see these these uh, SpaceX things send up weather satellites and add to the, um, you know, add to the technology, and they've got these drones now that are, you know, boat drones and all this stuff. It's really to try to get that cone right because people are counting on it. Um, but here's the other thing that was that was said during this storm that I'm going to really hype the next time. And it was, when you evacuate, don't evacuate 100 miles. Evacuate 10 miles. So if you're on the coast, let's say you're in New Smyrna, and it's the storms are just going to kill you. I mean, you might get loose power and some water in your house. Just go 10, 15 miles in. And then we would have a whole lot less loss of life because the majority of people who died in this storm died, and they still haven't been found. Many of them more than likely washed out to sea when the surge went back out in Fort Myers, um, Fort Myers Beach. You think about that. If they go 10 miles, they're alive. Because it's really about staying alive. Stuff can get rebuilt. This right. is survivability is the thing. Um, hurricanes, most deaths, if not all, could be prevented with, you know, the more weather technology and the more heads up and the more people that don't say, I'm going to ride this out, I've always ridden it out, because each storm is different. This storm is so much different than any other hurricane that we have seen even since Donna in 1960. 
It had this massive cold front. That's why we feel this weather that we feel right now. But as it came to the state, this front just in, uh, reacted to it, and it just exploded it just in a way that, you know, they'll study for decades. Um, we always have you on every once in a while to talk some sports. Let's do that another time sooner. I think I want to leave it there. It was great stuff. I appreciate how you helped last week, and uh, hope you got some rest, and we'll catch up again soon and talk some sports. You're kind, and I'll be, uh, unfortunately, I'm a season ticket holder to UCF, but unfortunately, there's another weeknight game. I need you to talk to the folks over there, and let me have some nice Saturday afternoons where I can tailgate well, and uh, listen to my headset. That, that, that kind of storm ruined uh, the one um, last weekend, so please excuse us for this week. we got a space game yeah. next week, and then we'll get back to that Saturday stuff. So I thanks. love the Saturday yeah. football at UCF, I know, man. It's I so know. much fun, and you do a great job. My wife and I listen to you and Gary as we drive to the games, and it just reminds me. I love it. You guys, seriously, Mark, I mean, the value that you provide is <laughs> we love it. We, we love listening to you. So we're big Knights fans, and, and I hope that they win tonight against SMU, and we'll be there in spirit. All right, buddy. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right, take it out. Greg Wormuth, uh anchor at uh, WFTV uh, Channel 9, and uh, a look back at uh, the hurricane last week. Uh, we come back, 11 o'clock hour, busy one. we got a little movie Wednesday coming up, but it'll all start with Scott in the News next. Let's really do the news. Yes. Now it is time to do the news. But now it's time uh, for the news. 11 o'clock hour, WYGM Orlando, WJRR, HD2, Cocoa Beach, Orlando Sports Leader, Martin Daniels, the beat of sports. Here's Scott in his Orlando City jersey. Game day, let's go. Yeah. Yeah, get up, it's game day. Lions versus the Herons from... Lockhart Stadium. Lockhart Stadium. How's the new stadium going for Miami? Yeah. Uh, Drive Pink Stadium, where the game's going to be played today? No, 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 no. The new one that they're getting. Oh. Uh, the same as NYCFC's new stadium. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Who, I don't know if you saw, because both New York teams in Major League Soccer clinched home field in the playoffs, and it's like, wait, what's going to happen? They play on the same day. Exactly. They yeah. got double hunters. <laughs> For a playoff game. It's 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 one of those situations that's very annoying. Hey, Aaron Judge finally found that Wait stuff in the lock. You just skipped the normal open? Oh, sorry. What up, my news yeah! What's going on? 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. You know what that means. What does An- it mean? It means another edition yeah. of the news. I'm Scott Harris. Woo! That's Mark Daniels. We are going to run through the top stories in the sports world. Now we're talking. First up, Aaron Judge finally found that stuff in the locker room. Wait a minute. Because he launched home run at number 62. And it only sets the American League record. the same stadium as Juan Gonzalez. Na- what is the name or of the... that st- he did play in. What? What is the name of the stadium that, that, that the, the, Red, the Texas Rangers play in? The corporate name? Yeah. I just noticed the one by Jerry's World. Isn't it the one that looks like a, like a warehouse on the outside? Well... Well, Camden Yards kind of looks like a warehouse. No, no, no. This one actually, because this I one has know a the roof. name because I think it's Global Life. side of the, I think you're right. That'll yeah. be the 2024 Big 12 Baseball Championship site. Is it really? Yeah. I actually just saw that the uh, the ACC is going to be playing theirs where the where Bull Durham the the Durham. No, that's where they've been in Durham. Oh, I wasn't. Yeah. Okay, they, I saw people on Twitter like making a big deal about it. Yeah. And it's like, oh. Uh, yeah, he finally hit home run 62. It is only the American League record. If you look in the record books, he is not the home run king. 
I know everyone. Do you wanted... think that we say that Aaron Rodgers is the record holder for passing yards in the NFC North? No, but we should. <laughs> we should. <laughs> Yeah. Just like if you look in the record books, it will say that Mark Daniels was the leading rusher for his high school uh, football team. No, that was not varsity. No, yeah. I didn't say varsity. Yeah. I just said for your team. Mm. Uh, yeah, he hit home run number 62. Uh, meanwhile, the Atlanta Braves took My down... My favorite part are the players that have been there for like two weeks coming out like, man, let's celebrate this moment. And Judge is like, wait a minute, are, are you... Oh, 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 you're that guy. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, like, is Anthony Rizzo allowed to celebrate? No, with no, the... Rizzo can. I mean, the Yankees have, like, seven guys on the roster well, now that were not there guy. a month yeah. and a half ago. So, yeah. Uh, the Miami, uh, the Atlanta Braves uh, took down the Miami Marlins 2-1 to one to take their fifth straight NL East title and finish the first leg of a trek they hope leads them to another crown. Atlanta earned a first-round bye as the number two seed in the NL behind the Dodgers. The Braves were... Ten and a half games behind the Mets at the start of June. Lost four of five to New York in early August, but they were in familiar territory as they uh, ended up passing the Mets and won the division. Yeah. Not a good day to be a Mets fan. Well, uh, the lead they once had is uh, is gone. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. By the way, Aaron Judd, I mean, it, it's going to take a lot. Uh, he, he's four... Uh, points behind in batting average, hitting three eleven, um, and Luis Arias is hitting three fifteen mm-hmm. for the Twins. So I don't think he's going to get there. It would take a really magical day to get the triple crown. French basketball star Victor Wambanyama, the uncanny seven foot five center. What projected- is his nickname? It's got to be like Wamba something, right? Wams. No, it's got to be more than that. But go on, yeah. Uh, projected number one. At- uh, pick in the upcoming NBA draft, next year's NBA draft, put on a show in a 37-point performance on Tuesday night at the Dollar Loan Center against the G League Ag- uh, G League Ignite and Scoot Henderson, the projected number two pick. Henderson scored 28 points and led his team to a 122-115 victory. Did you see um, Scoot Henderson? Nothing wrong in confidence. He says, I, I think I should be the number one player in the draft. Right? Of course, he, if, if, and he should say that. And Victor Wambayama, did you see his statement? No. He said, well, if I was him and I wasn't born, I too would want to be the number one in the draft. <laughs> That's great. Great answer. If I wasn't born, then mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Did you watch any of the game? Yeah, that's what I said to Keith Smith. I watched it a little bit last night. Aubrey Dawkins was playing? Aubrey Dawkins can flat out shoot. That's correct. Aubrey Dawkins is on the NBA uh, G League team. Because I heard a good shout-out. I heard a good UCF shout-out watching the game. Yeah, except the color analyst was wrong. Uh, not the part about playing for his dad at UCF. We didn't get to the Sweet 16. We that, lost the I second thought, round. I thought, I thought that yeah, part was get wrong. We to the uh, Sweet 16. But, yeah, Aubrey's out there playing. and uh, Wamanyama is... He's good. He, he's really good for a guy that size, whatever he is. If he's seven three seven four, as I said earlier, nine feet tall, he can do all this stuff at the rim, and he blocks Scoot Henderson shot a couple of times. Scoot had a couple of nice drives on him, but I've not seen a guy at his size shoot outside with the arc that he does. It's a natural shot. It, it's not a line drive that has very little arc. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Kevin Durant is seven foot. Um, and has a great shot, but I mean, this guy is like seven four, and so I said the Porzingis. I I don't think Porzingis coming out into the draft had the same type of shot, but 
He, he is indeed someone that is going to be special. All right, which one do you want on the Knicks? Which one what? Which one of the two you want on the Knicks? Which one would I want? Yeah. Oh, Wembayama. Yeah. But the Knicks are going to end up finishing 11th in the East. Mm-hmm. Won't make the playoffs. Yeah. Have too many wins at the odds of getting your one pick. picking fifth. Portland Thorns owner Mira Paulson and Chicago Red Stars owner Armin Wisler are both stepping away from decision-making roles with their respective NWSL clubs until the findings are released from an ongoing investigation into numerous reports of sexual misconduct and abuse around the league. Paulson, who is also the owner of the MLS's Portland Timbers, announced the decision in a statement Tuesday, one day after the release of the findings of a disturbing independent investigation into the NWSL's abuse commissioned by U.S. Soccer. Meanwhile, Gavin Wilkinson and Mike Golb, who who both served in executive roles with Paulson's teams, are also stepping away from the Thorns who are headed into the NWSL playoffs. The crazy thing is, Mark, uh, you don't pay attention to... You probably didn't see this. Gavin Wilkinson was supposed to have stepped away from anything dealing with the Portland Thorns, I believe, two seasons ago. Yeah. But why is he now saying that now they are stepping away? I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know and like in the report. The owners are, uh, instead of accepting responsibility, just kind of go, hey, it's probably best if I just step away. And I, Again, I said yesterday, I said today the Bridget Mike, you can make the argument the league should be shut down even though that they've made efforts in the last year to make changes after the players refused to play, uh, this report to me, this is me speaking, not Scott and, and his affiliation working for Orlando. This is me speaking. I think off the record there are a number of owners of MLS teams that would not financially mind if the NWSL folded. And there's an optics thing to this that probably is the reason why it's not, but this league has significant problems. And it's not going to be fixed because he had an investigative report that said, here's the culture that it had. It has many issues that it financially doesn't really make sense in most markets. Not all markets, in most markets. But we'll see what happens. Final story. Quarterback Blake Bortles, who led the Jacksonville Jaguars to a division title and the AFC Championship game to the 2017 season, has says he is retired. Quote, I quietly, I didn't tell anyone I'm retired. I guess you guys are kind of... He kind of did this, though, when you see how he was here for an mm-hmm. event. I know, that's the thing. I'm, like, I'm seeing all this stuff on Twitter about what was your fa- favorite Blake Bortles moment. I'm like, I thought th- I thought we went through well, this already. he got already. inducted to the Hall of Fame, and he had not closed the door yet. And then, both, he was at McKinsey's event. And then he, I think at the golf tournament they had, he told people that, yeah, I, I filed the papers. So well, I, it wasn't until he went on Pardon My Take that it really became official, apparently. Well, then he put out a tweet that he wanted to qualify for the 2024 U.S. equestrian team. In oh, the Olympics. okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's it on the news. Be sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating. Let's say five-star segment. Just go there and leave us a five-star. a five-star segment because of the performance, like five-star recruits, or we're just saying it's a five-star segment? Yes. Is it kind of like an Uber rating? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, and want to shout out the all the news heads out there who make this possible. Uh, want to shout out Danny listening in Florida. Want Danny sh- Kennelly was a guest on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, want to shout out Keith listening in Orlando. Want to shout out uh, Greg listening in Orlando as uh, well. Warmoth is listening. Uh, Kyle listening. 
wherever he's listening. All right. Want to shout out Mark listening in Maitland, Frank listening in Maitland. You guys are what make this segment possible. Back to you, Mark. Pre-game at 5 for UCF football. Tonight they'll take on SMU. Tonight is the 99th game at that stadium. Wow. Next Thursday for the space game against Temple will be the 100th game played at that stadium. UCF is 75-23. and 23. Um, It's and we'll, Wednesday uh, night action. Right. Not maction, but action because it's AAC. Um, and uh, we'll have the coverage for you. And again, Orlando City Soccer against uh, Miami slash Fort Lauderdale. Uh, it's just after 8 o'clock on Real Radio 104.1. Back with Movie Wednesday, next. Yes, indeed, boys and girls, it's Wednesday. Time for Movie Wednesday, the latest happenings on the big screen or on your small handheld device to watch your favorite movie. Uh, how many horror movies are you up to so far? We're uh, five days into October. Well, I'm saving it for the back end of the month. Whoa, whoa! Oh, you got as many chills and thrills in that I can later in the month. I've, I've, I'm, I'm already halfway through movie three. Like, yeah, I got to get this one. I got this one. I got to get back on track. I got to get back on track. Movie-going audiences chose the horror movie over the romantic comedy to kick off the month of October. Paramount's Smile topped the North American charts with $22 million in ticket sales, leaving Billy Eichner's rom-com Bros in the dust. That did not do what people thought. It launched with an estimated $4.8 million to take fourth place. And, no, it did not. And it's a shame. Uh, because they don't make comedies really anymore that go into theaters. They are straight to streaming services. Here's the thing. If you happen to be a star of a movie and and a co-writer of the movie, it really doesn't help the publicity for your movie if after the first weekend you go on social media and blame people for not going to see your movie. Yes, that's what he did. That is what he did. So, yeah. Uh, rounding out, though, the top five, it was Smile at number one, Don't Worry Darling at number two, The Woman King, number three, Bros at four, and then Avatar, Mark, it's back. It's back, baby, and better than ever. Re-released, and it made $4.7 million. Mark, this is a movie that came out in 2009. Huh. Did you ever see Avatar? Yes. And? Thoughts? Ugh. Ugh. Do you have any interest in seeing the sequel? No, I, I I really did not like the movie because I I just sat thinking he James, James Cameron, Cameron was almost like aren't I good? Isn't well, this fantastic? Don't well, you feel like you're like to me that that was like the first metaverse. I mean the thing is, Mark, when you make the highest grossing movie of all time, mm-hmm. you can act that way. Porky's because well he did Titanic. Oh. And then he surpassed Titanic with Avatar. So what? I didn't like it. Which is, I think, closing in. You liked it? No. Oh, okay. I did not like that movie. The James Bond casting team will be looking for a seasoned actor. Since Daniel Craig is done playing 007 after last year's No Time to Die, the team behind the popular spy franchise is deliberating on his successor, but they said they won't be considering young actors. We've tried looking at younger people in the past, but trying to visualize it doesn't work. Remember, Bond's already a veteran. He's had some experience. He's a person who has been through the... Wait, I'm sorry, wait. Say that again. Remember, Bond's a veteran. 
He's had some experience. They don't want to have. We went from Sean Connery to guys that were twenty five years younger than him. That's just because they cast in. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, like Daniel Craig was like in his late thirties. Yeah. They're they're not going to cast a twenty five year old. I know. That's the thing. (laughs) So fired up for. Okay, so Mark Rolling Stone released uh, the greatest comedy films of the twenty first century. I don't know if you saw this list, but I'm going to run through the final 10, 10 to 1, and let me know if you've seen any of these movies and if you have any thoughts on them. Number 10, 40-Year-Old Virgin. Did I see it? Did you like it? It was okay. Number 9, Shaun of the Dead. No. One of my favorite movies of all time. Love this movie. Number 8, Tony Erdman. No. It's a German comedy movie. Yeah. Uh, Number 7, Punch Drunk Love. Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Number six, Walk Hard. No. You didn't see Walk Hard? No. It's funny. I know of it, but I didn't see it. Number five, Idiocracy. Yeah. Which is way too real if you watch it nowadays. Number four, Step Brothers. Yeah, of course. Number three, Bridesmaids. Yeah. Number two, In the Loop. Oh, wow. That's your guy. That's your guy yeah. from Veep. Yeah. And number one, Best in Show. <laughs> okay. All right. Any issues with the top ten no, list? No, no, it's great. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I like it. All right, what do you got? So I was watching this movie. You watch this movie a lot. This character, you you want to talk about a traitor. This guy. So in in Gladiator, okay, General Quintus. Yes. The movie opens, right? Mm -hmm. Maximus is out there. He's kicking butt. Yep. He's winning battles, okay? Mm -hmm. He's like both the intercontinental champion and the world champion. Yeah. He's got both belts, okay? And Quintus, you know, he's one of the guys that answers to Maximus, right? Mm -hmm. And then this happens in in Gladiator. Play the first clip, okay? I need that counsel. Wait, Gaius and Falco. Gaius and Falco. Sword. Sword. Maximus, please be careful. That was not prudent. Prudent? The emperor has been slain. The emperor died of natural causes. Why are you armed, Quintus? Guards! Please don't fight, Maximus. I'm sorry, Caesar has spoken. Right until dawn. And then execute him. Quintus, look at me. Look at me! Promise me that you will look after my family. Your family will meet you in the afterlife. So this guy, Quintus, goes from being loyal to Maximus, right? Mm-hmm. And he flips when the son kills the father, yeah. right? And then he becomes loyal to the son, right? Mm-hmm. So talk about the gutless punk that he is, right? Yeah. Then, when Maximus comes back, okay, and finishes off the kid, then all of a sudden Quintus, guess who's kissing up again? Play mm-hmm. this clip. <laughs> to be reinstated. There was a dream that was wrong. It shall be realized. These are the wishes of Marcus Aurelius. Free the prisoners! Go! Oh, now, now, now he's back kissing up to Maximus mm-hmm, again, mm-hmm. right? Talk about the ultimate traitor this guy is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who can trust this guy? Well, he's looking out for himself. That's all he's doing. I, loyal at the start, then he's flipping because he he, he thinks he's going to be part of the winning team. 
And then and then Maximus, you know, gets the big battle. Like, all right, hey, you know what? Free the prisoners. No, Mark, what can I do for you? He's playing both sides, so he always comes out ahead. Well. Let me tell you something. This guy needs to go, okay? Talk about the ultimate flipper. This guy is. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Which way is the wind blowing? That's the side that I'll be on, huh? I'm watching that going, Maximus, once he frees the prisoners, get rid of this guy. No, 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 because it's actually right before this clip when he flips, when Commodus is asking for says, a sword, sword, he goes, a, no. Yeah. That's well, yeah, because he knows how the fight's going to go. Mm-hmm. That's why. He's trying to gain some points with Maximus now going, wait a minute, this guy could be the leader in about five minutes. I better <laughs> flip sides right now, you know? And then he kind of wonder when Maximus falls, he's like, yeah, let's see what the Senators have to say right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always oh, looking out for himself, not a team player. Nice job, Quintus. Yeah. Still holds up. Maybe he still holds up. Of course it holds up. Yeah. Um... By the way, Thomas Aranda has been in some really good movies. By the way, uh, yeah, he the was guy in, that plays Quintus. He was in Tombstone. He's in Hunt for Red October. Yeah, yeah, some really good movies. Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. A lot of good stuff there. But talk about the ultimate flipper, huh? Just playing both sides, man. Yeah, right. What you got to do? Yeah, okay. Especially Mark. Back then, that's what you got to do. Granted, if you get caught, not going to work out for you. Yeah. All right. So be it. Uh, we. <laughs> All right, we'll come back. More of the Beat of Sports next. Because we couldn't get through a Wednesday show without a little Nas. He's playing here tonight. Like I said. What a, what a night in Orlando, How huh? Little Nas is here. The UCF-SMU game tonight. The decisions that one must make on where to spend their entertainment dollar. Uh, it's quite torn. Uh, believe it or not, the uh, uh, today, I believe, is the day the NFL is going to actually talk to Tua. Nah, we're not Tua. Have they been busy? Um, and, th- I mean, this story is far from over. From changing safety policies, when he could come back, if he comes back this year... Um, the NFL PA, the NFL, who's right, who's wrong. Um, and, and that story is going to continue for quite some time. Kyle Costa is the editor-in-chief at uh, The Big Lead and wrote an interesting piece. And we kind of touched on this yesterday about somewhat our obsession in one watching plays like this. And then, as I talked about, um, our acceptance at football is quite a violent sport. So after reading Kyle's piece, I invite him to come on and join us. Kyle, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm fine. I, uh, yesterday when I was talking about this, I said... I accept that I, in a sports sense, am addicted to a game that in nature is incredibly violent, where every play there's some type of situation where one is to have a physical advantage over somebody else. But in the play that happened with Tua and the Bengals, and a lot of people were critical of Amazon for the replays, what was your response? I know you wrote about this, but for those that didn't read it, about the number of times they showed it and why we couldn't take our eyes off of it. Well, I was fine with it. And I think I'm in the minority when it comes to this because I think it created basically one of the most honest moments you're ever going to get watching NFL football. Um, the broadcast is essentially a commercial for the product. They're not going to tackle the hard issues. But in the two replays, which came over and over and over again, which were so visceral, you see his fingers curl. 
it's unpleasant to watch, and you just kind of sit there in silence, and you're kind of forced to grapple with, what did we just see? I think it took a lot of the discussion that we have, a lot of the complicated feelings that we have, and we don't know how to process them when we're watching the game, and it forces us to confront them and look them square in the eyes. And I think that people who take issue with the replays are choosing the wrong villain here. Um, When football happens, people get hurt. And I think it's an important part of the process to at least occasionally check yourself and wonder, what is my involvement in this? What actually am I addicted to? And what does it do to the bodies of the people that play it? Now, having said all that, that's just one man's opinion. I don't have the right answers, but it felt like the perfect storm where you have this young face of football, well-liked controversy coming into the game, whether he should be playing at all. And then it looks like the worst happens. If it's not going to happen in that moment, it's never going to happen for people. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's almost like we never like to play the mirror game of the role that we play. Like I said, I acknowledge that I'm addicted to something that's quite violent. And if somebody views me in a negative way because of that, I accept that. And I don't want injury to anybody. But I also think, and I'm curious your thoughts, you live also in what you do in a social media world. The ability of that replay then going so viral, creating such a tidal wave of opinions and then so-called armchair medical experts i also think is a big part of this story would you agree yeah i think so i mean it's a jumping off point and we live in a society where everybody has to have an immediate opinion and again i'm guilty of that i wrote my piece in the aftermath of this minutes later but it was just about how i feel i think the injury happened whether we see it in all its detail the guy's still hurt. So I think in a lot of ways people see it as this panacea where if they don't have to look at it, then it didn't happen. And I think that kind of obscures the hard reality. I'm as guilty as everybody else in watching football. I was worried about my bets. I was worried about if Teddy Bridgewater could come in and and lead a comeback. Like We all kind of fall into this system where we have the script. Someone gets hurt. There's some somber music. There's the prayer emojis on Twitter. And then the announcer comes in and says, it's third down and it's back to business. And it's just kind of uncomfortable to tackle how you're feeling in the moment. But I thought it was important to do that, at least in this case, because it seemed like the perfect opportunity to do so. We are typically reactionists, though, because the uproar wasn't really there Wednesday. And up to kickoff Thursday, there were a few people that were using social media or interview shows to say, hey, I really question if he should be playing but we then reacted after the injury on Thursday. I agree. I, I agree. Um, but, I, I mean, it was an issue. We yeah. saw what happened in the game where he went down and he crumpled to the turf, and it was deemed a back injury. There was something going on. Um, I'm not sure it's the public's role or even the media's role to ask questions and, and to say, you know, how loud do the voices have to be that he shouldn't be playing? Because even those assessments that we're making we're not making that with the full information right like the dolphins know what's going on with him a lot better than we do now it certainly seemed like something was amiss and i think when you get that secondary injury which so many people have pointed out you know two concussions in the span of five days it's the second one that is really impactful and can be really dangerous i think part of that is just feeling like we're sort of helpless You know, like 
We want to put our opinions out there, and it feels cathartic to do so. But I think that deep down, we all know that the NFL is going to continue to do what it does despite the outcry. But it feels like this is the one place where people can at least kind of feel something. And, like, I think they use social media to feel as though they're involved in the process in some way when deep down maybe they know that it's not impactful. Has the NFL and the Dolphins, and maybe for different reasons here, lost the benefit of the doubt to believe the initial story, meaning the Dolphins, and they're unrelated, whatever Stephen Ross was trying to do with Tom Brady and Sean Payton and all that stuff, but they got caught and the NFL penalized them. I don't know if it's connected to the assumption by some, and I'm not in this group, well, the Dolphins, they're lying all the time, and for the NFL, we always hear, protect the shield. Have both those uh, groups lost the benefit of the doubt because of their storytelling of previous incidents? I think it would be naive if you didn't approach stuff like this with some sort of cynicism, but also that leaves you creating kind of a universal response to everything, and that's not to believe anything. Like, I, I'm open to the explanations of the Dolphins. Uh, I, I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on TV or the radio. So I'm, I'm open to everything that going on is on the up and up and we are getting weird information here and it's just our perception that is misreading it from the outside but you do have mountains of evidence in times where we've been misled by large entities whether it be the dolphins or any other nfl team and the nfl is a large because it comes down to one thing and it's what's going to be best for the bottom line i said uh, and discussed this yesterday that and back to the point that you made, we were just talking about us and the role we play in this, that in the end we want our stars to play, you know, to get out there. There's some talk now that the league now may ask the quote, eye in the sky, if a player's wobbling, then, you know, we need to take them out. Well, that's that's a big gray area for a guy that may come up and ding his ankle and, and needs to walk it off. But fans still don't want to know of Toradol, Adderall, Percocet, all these things that are still being used to get guys out there on Sunday. It's like, hey, I don't want to know what's behind the curtain. Just have the curtain go up and the show go on. And I think we we still are ignorant of that as long as the ball's kicked off Sunday at 1. And I think that's a perfectly fine way to approach it. If you're not interested in that type of stuff, you don't have to be interested. There's a wide tent for the NFL. Mm-hmm. You can get all that viewership, and then you can also get the viewership of the people who want to perhaps be a little more thoughtful about it or want to go in with their eyes a little bit wider so they can fully understand how the machine works. I think that there's room for all. Um, you know, I, that eye in the sky thing that you mentioned, it, it, is, it is a concern, and you wonder the biggest one could be, like, the competitive advantage we don't want to see a star player not on the field, but it wasn't that long ago that Patrick Mahomes was forced out of a huge playoff game against the Cleveland Browns based on these issues, forcing Chad Henney into play. So it does happen, and it does happen for other reasons. It certainly, if it's going to do more good by protecting the long-term health of these athletes who presumably we should care about if they're superstars, it's tough to really look on the other side and say, well, that we would lose too much by having these people not on the field. But isn't our attention span just short? Because, again, we were told, read, heard, listened, saw a few years ago, five, six, seven years ago, all of the stories on concussions and CTE and the billions of dollars that were settled on. Then a guy took a knee during an anthem, and we shifted and pivoted there. Then the NFL was supposed to be done, and we had record ratings, and then we had a COVID and come back. And it's almost like 
That's our attention span. Now we're back on this because this happened, but it was in our face five, six years ago, and we eventually moved on to the next thing. And, again, I'll be cynical here. Yeah. Again, and I bet we move on, and I bet you something crops up in tomorrow's game where it leaves us all talking. There's a controversy on Sunday, and we're on to the next thing. Like, concussions, you know, maybe they came to a head in, with a feature-length movie a few years ago, but they've been a part of football forever. And for the vast majority of time, they've just been completely ignored and not treated as anything other than the cost of doing business. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not naive in the sense that I think that we're going to have some great awakening when it comes to some of the dirty or unsettling stuff about football it is what it is i think you just at a certain point you maybe need to take agency for yourself and decide exactly what path you want to follow because ultimately i think that's the one thing you control is the way that you process the game and maybe the way that you discuss the game individually because enacting some sort of widespread change is going to be hard we see that in all parts of society and especially enacting some sort of widespread change in a moneymaker like the NFL, which has proven up to now that they know what to do in order to make sure that everybody stays fat and giggly. My guess is on Sunday at 8 o'clock, instead of what's happening with Tua, if the Cowboys beat the Rams, it'll be, you can't bench Cooper Rush. We'll quickly move on to that. It can't possibly be about a concussion for a Miami quarterback, because that's just our attention span um, is where we'll probably go. Uh, Kyle is on uh, Twitter at Kyle Koster. That's K-O-S-T-E-R, the editor-in-chief at uh, The Big League, which you can find at TheBigLead.com. Kyle, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Uh, Kyle Koster, some insight on our view of why we watched that video and uh, how that discussion uh, elevated itself. And, yeah, like I said, the Cowboys win on Sunday. Cooper Rush is a good game. That's the main topic, Scott, right? Hey, main we're done with that concussion thing. I mean, main topic, Mark, it's the only topic. Yeah, I mean, that's just it. Like, the Cowboys have to wave uh, Dak Prescott on Monday. That's the case. Come back, a couple of items and notes and quotes before we wrap up a Wednesday show next. Time for the latest news, gossip, trends, and off-the-wall stories. Trends. Ooh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. A lot of motivational speakers and authors will tell you, bet on yourself. Yeah. Aaron Judge did. And after today, it may be the best gamble of a season that one could have going into free agency. Would you agree, Scott? It's pretty good. Absolutely. What did I? What did I say the other day? It's a ten-year, uh, five hundred million dollar deal. Where we paid thirty million dollars a year. Well, you're just going to get drop all the uh, uh, media coverage and go here. Mm-hmm. This is what I did. Um, but good for him. So sneaky or not. Yeah, live golfers may qualify for world golf ranking points beginning this weekend. Okay, and here's how they've done it. According to a couple of reports in Europe, mm-hmm. the Mina Tour, okay, which is the Middle East North Africa Tour, submitted their field for a tournament this week. It happens to be the entire field of the live event. You're going to say, how is that possible? How is that possible, Because the Middle East and North Africa tour is not playing. They're basically out of business. Okay. But the corporate name remains Mm. open. Okay. And the tour does qualify for World Golf Ranking points. Mm -hmm. So what they're saying is, we're back open for business, and this event being played in Thailand is our tournament. Oh, okay. 
Whether the World Golf Ranking people will accept it, I don't know. But Liv is claiming they th- we qualify for points this week. There we go. I mean, that's Mark, if there's anything I learned from George Costanza, is just say that you did. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You didn't qualify. But we did. We did. Right. See? The Minotaur did have an Asian development tour early in the spring. But um, its total prize pool for all of its events, 75000 also known as Snacks for Live. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Wow. All right. A couple of reminders. Uh, busy uh, night tonight. Little Nas. I mean, Little Nas X, yeah. Um, Out of the Hard Rock. And uh, Orlando City Soccer, big match for them against uh, the Fort Lauderdale MLS team that calls itself Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, that match is on Real Radio 104.1, begins just after 8 o'clock. Yep. And uh, if they win, Columbus loses, they clinch a playoff spot. Otherwise, yes. it's going to come down to Sunday. Decision day. And then, of course, UCF football tonight, they take on SMU. Uh, coverage begins at 5 o'clock. Kickoff of a big game is after 7. SMU's got a really good offense. UCF, big game at home for them. Yes, it's the 99th all-time game at that stadium. Yes. What time is the Terry Mahajer pregame? The popular Terry Mahajer interview would be at 535. Gotcha. Just wanted to clarify that. So um, I want to be able to know what I'm listening to as I'm setting up my broadcast. So that'll be uh, all part of uh, the sports calendar uh, tonight in Central Florida. We're going to... Be back for a Thursday show tomorrow. Recap uh, the UCF football game and some other football fun things as we dive into another big weekend. So, like, I guess tonight's game starts the weekend. For you, yeah. Yeah, even though it was part of last weekend's schedule, mm-hmm. I think it kind of begins. Mark, it's really? Action. Action. The AAC. <laughs> Not action, but action. Mark, really, the thing is, the last two weeks have been one week. Yeah, seems that way. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate it. Good guest today. If you missed any of it, check it out on demand at 96thegame.com. Danny Cano was great this morning talking to some college football. Keith Smith, good NBA stuff, and everybody else. Greg Warmoth on the Hurricane. Uh, get the show where you find your favorite podcast. Just type in the Beat of Sports. Scott Produced. I'm Mark Daniels. See you tomorrow for the Beat of Sports.